Welcome to the Thyroid Fixer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Amy, and we're diving deep into the world of hormones, especially for all you fierce women in perimenopause and menopause and everyone struggling with hypothyroidism. So if you are battling weight gain, you're feeling like shedding those pounds is an impossible feat. If you're dealing with plummeting energy levels, gut-wrenching fatigue, or a libido that seems to have left town, then you're in the right place. And let's not even start on the hair loss. If these symptoms are sounding all too familiar, you have found your tribe. My goal is to educate, empower, and shake up your world. Remember, I want you to embrace every inch of that badass woman that you truly are. So if you're ready to dive in and fix things, let's go. We're going to dive into a topic that I hear so much about in my Girl Fix Your Thyroid Facebook group. I hear your questions. I see your questions all around high glucose and high insulin and insulin resistance, as well as some of you that have dealt with PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome. Now, mainly that's a state that we see, I won't even call it a disease. It's a state that we see pop up when a woman is more in her 20s or 30s. I was diagnosed with it in my 30s. And how I was diagnosed was I was actually having a massive breakout. This is after my hypothyroidism diagnosis. I was having a massive breakout and I went into my doctor and I was gaining weight as well. So that's why we're going to talk about how high insulin, high glucose and picos can make you fat. I was gaining weight and I went into him and I said, what is happening to me? Look at my face. It looks like a pizza and I'm gaining the weight again that I had finally lost after we fixed my thyroid. What's up? And he just looked at me and he said, you have PCOS. He's like, we can do a vaginal ultrasound. And we can check for it if you really want to confirm it, which I did, and it was confirmed. But you have PCOS and you have insulin resistance. And that insulin resistant component of the PCOS is what's causing the weight gain. And the high androgens, thus the high DHT, which I did a podcast on last week, you can go back and listen to it. That high DHT is also contributing to your acne. So we really want to dive in today on this insulin resistant piece and how it can be affecting you and really how you can gain weight by really not changing anything and really how you can gain weight and not lose weight even when you change things for the good. Even when you change up your diet, you change up your lifestyle and you're doing all of the things, but you're still gaining, the scale still keeps moving up or it's not moving down whatsoever and you're getting frustrated and you're ready to throw the scale out the window and you're basically searching for answers but you can't find any because maybe your doctor isn't testing you properly. Just like thyroid, insulin has to be tested properly, or maybe they're just blowing you off or you're getting your A1C, your hemoglobin A1C test. And they're saying, ah, you're normal because it's a 5.6 and it's not flagged high or red yet on your labs. So let's break all of that down because this could be the key answer for you to clear up your face and lose some weight. But mainly with my perimenopausal menopausal ladies out there listening, and I know I've heard from you too that you say, well, I have PCOS. And I always question, well, wait, so do I, but do I have it when my periods start getting irregular? Do I still have polycystic ovarian syndrome, even with a loss of ovarian function moving into menopause? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But if you've had it in the past, then you are definitely more prone to insulin resistance. And we'll dive into that. So let's first start with insulin resistance, how it's often just missed, overlooked, not tested for, and what you can do about it. 
So insulin, insulin is a hormone. It's important to remember that it is a hormone released by the pancreas in order for your body to lower its glucose. And insulin helps to push nutrients and glucose into the cell. So insulin resistance is when the cells in your muscles, body fat, and liver, so this is important, we're going to come back to these three, muscles, body fat, and liver, start resisting or ignoring the signal that the hormone insulin is trying to send out. Because remember, all hormones are messengers. They send a message, just like the T3 thyroid hormone, the active thyroid hormone sends a message to your cell, to that receptor site saying, hey, give this person a metabolism, let them grow their hair, let them have energy through the day, let them sleep well. It gives a message and sends a signal to the cell to do something. So the hormone insulin is trying to send out the signal to the muscles, the body fat, and the liver. And it's the signal is, hey, grab the glucose out of the bloodstream and put it into the cell and put some other nutrients into the cell too. So glucose, also known as blood sugar. So when we say test your blood sugar, wear a continuous glucose monitor, which is testing your blood sugar. So glucose known as blood sugar, that's arguably the body's main fuel source. And really, unless you are keto and truly into ketosis or you're carnivore and you're producing a mass amount of ketones, your body is probably running on glucose. When we talk about glucose, we have to break down the macronutrient component. So we know that there's proteins, carbs, and fats. Carbohydrates elicit the most amount of insulin being secreted by your pancreas. Carbohydrates call for more insulin because they raise your glucose. Now it's important to remember that everything short of just straight up 100% fat, like eating a tablespoon of coconut oil, drinking olive oil, literally eating lard, 100% fat will not elicit an insulin response, but anything else will, including protein. And we'll get to that. So you eat carbohydrates of any kind. I don't care if it's berries or a freaking candy bar. It's going to elicit a glucose response. You're going to have this rise in your glucose. We can see it on a CGM. We can see it with, if you test with the little strips where you're pricking your finger, you can see that change in your glucose. Now, as glucose goes up, there's a signal like, hey, pancreas, we need some insulin over here. We need to lower the glucose. So if you think of a typical, and we won't even call them a type two diabetic yet. We'll say they're, they haven't even been diagnosed yet. And oh my gosh, they're testing their glucose. And they're getting readings of 200, 300, 400, 500, 600. That's super high, by the way. And with that high glucose, the pancreas has just has to pump out. I mean, it's working overtime. It's pumping out the insulin. It's pumping out the insulin. It's pumping out the insulin. Because for God's sake, we need to lower this glucose number in the body. It is not healthy to be walking around with an elevated glucose. The body knows that. The body knows the cellular and tissue and nerve damage that can come from elevated glucose levels. The body knows that walking around with high glucose levels impairs your thinking, causes inflammation, let alone the fat storage. So the pancreas secretes that insulin to push down the glucose and tries to get it into a normal range. So side note, this is what happened to a very dear client of mine, dear patient of mine years ago. 
And I reference him often because I ended up writing a paper with a colleague of mine on how we reversed his diabetes by using berberine and a low carb diet. So he came to me with blood sugar readings of 600. And he actually knew some of the signs of it, excessive thirst, excessive urination, and just a really horrible, sick feeling, feeling like he was going to pass out. So he checked himself into a hospital. They tested him. And his A1C was a 13.9. Blood sugar readings in the 600s. So at that point of time, his pancreas could not pump out enough insulin to lower his body's glucose. He became insulin dependent type two diabetic. Now, some insulin dependent type twos are just because they've walked around with high blood sugar so long that their pancreas shit the bed. It no longer even produces an adequate amount of insulin to control their body's blood sugar, to control the glucose level. In his case, we were catching it at a very early stage of his disease progression. And we were catching it at a place where, yes, he needed insulin in the beginning to help to lower that body's, his body's glucose because his pancreas couldn't keep up. But then we also changed his diet, took out the carbohydrates that elicit the biggest glucose spike, the biggest insulin response. And we put him on a ketogenic diet, mainly focusing on proteins and fats. Now I said earlier, fats do not elicit a glucose rise or an insulin response. Protein is moderate. So protein still will call on some insulin from the pancreas, but it's not a lot. It's not like carbohydrates. So when we focus on protein and fat with him, we saw his A1C drop from a 13.9 to an 8.4 in just six months. Now, to give you a kind of a, a, a platform to picture this on, I want your A1C between a 4.8 and a 5.2. He was 13.9. And then he was an 8.4. So when we look at it that way, we say, wow, that guy's still really type two diabetic, but much, much better. And his blood sugars actually came down from being in the 600s, came down to being, we got him down into like the 400s, 300s, but then in six months. So he was able to get off insulin, by the way, six weeks, six weeks of a low carb diet and berberine blood sugar fixer. He dropped his A1C from 13.9 to an 8.4 and got off the insulin. Now he knew he wanted to get off the insulin because this is all gonna tie into our conversation today. Insulin is a fat storage hormone. You never want too much of it. And you certainly don't wanna be placed on it because that you're just, as we look at that whole cycle of the body, you're putting insulin in to drop the glucose, but too much insulin, insulin is the fat storage hormone. So now we have excess insulin now our bodies are literally storing everything as fat. So you don't want to be on insulin. He knew that. He told me that. Never did I think it would only take six weeks. I mean, I was thinking like, listen, dude, you got to give me like four or five months here to get you off the insulin. No, six weeks. I was amazed. He ended up total losing over 100 pounds. In that time, I forget how much weight he lost. In six months, we took his A1C from that 13.9 down to, it was 5.2 or 5.4, totally reversing his diabetes, completely reversing the insulin resistance that comes with it. He was no longer taking insulin. He was eating a low carb diet. He was taking his berberine. He was feeling great. He lost over hundred pounds. So that really is, the reason I tell you that is to, to first of all, know, I mean, these are the signs of symptoms of high glucose and he knew it. 
he knew it right away, which is why he checked himself into a hospital. But also the impact of dietary changes and even some supplements and the impact that they can have on our body. It's pretty phenomenal. So when we're talking about the the macronutrients, the proteins, the carbs, the fats, we broke that down. So one thing you can change, obviously, is the amount of carbohydrates that you're taking in. But here's the thing. What if you do that and you're still getting high glucose numbers? That's where we have to go back to the source and we have to say, we're back to the drawing board, and we have to say, what is causing this high glucose in this person when they have lowered their carbohydrates to 10 grams a day, 20 grams a day? Maybe they're doing carnivore. Now, usually carnivore will kick it in. (laughs) Usually carnivore will lower that glucose and insulin unless you're walking around with a thyroid problem. Thyroid is always at the top. It's at the top of the pyramid telling insulin, telling the pancreas what to do because the thyroid's the master signaler. It's it's giving messages to the other hormones as to what to do. That's why we see a drop in your sex hormones when you have a thyroid problem. That's why we see insulin dysregulation when you have a thyroid problem. So we'll see a large amount of insulin resistance when someone's thyroid is off. So you eat... Glucose is in the bloodstream, causes high blood glucose levels, and you start producing more and more and more insulin. Pancreas works overtime, and then the cells at the muscles, at the body fat level, and at the liver, those cells actually become resistant to the effects of insulin. So insulin is trying, the beta cells in the pancreas make insulin. The body is trying to to allow that insulin to lower the glucose and push glucose and nutrients into the cell to be utilized for fuel. But when your cells are resistant to the effect of insulin, to that messenger sending the signal, it's like they got their ears covered. Like the cells are just like, nope, don't want to hear it, can't get in, can't get in, doors are closed, not getting in today. Then insulin is just in the bloodstream. And it goes back to what we were talking about, about him taking, taking insulin taking insulin to lower the glucose. But if you're insulin resistant, taking more and more insulin, just going to make you fatter. And now the cycle continues because then that excess body fat also causes insulin resistance. So that's why we want to lose body fat to lower our insulin resistance. But you say, I'm trying, I'm doing all the things to lose weight and it's not working. I don't want to be insulin resistant. And insulin resistance is the cause. That's why I'm overweight. That's why I can't lose weight. Yes, maybe, maybe. Because walking around with high glucose and walking around with insulin resistance will cause fat gain. Hands down, 100%. Because when the cells are resistant to insulin, you have that excess insulin in the bloodstream, even though insulin is vital for life, it's vital. You don't want too much of it because it will absolutely cause fat storage. It will morph into being the fat storage hormone. And I've joked about this in the past, but I call it the Jekyll and Hyde hormone because it is needed for life. However, too much of it, fat stored all over your body, just opening up those the fat cells to just grow and grow. And we're just going to store more fat in the cells. And that is insulin resistance. Now, the cells, despite the presence of insulin in the bloodstream, they don't become unlocked until we get to the root cause. So if it's your thyroid that we need to fix and we need to optimize so that your pancreas isn't getting these wonky signals 
to pump out excess insulin for some reason. We fix the thyroid. Then all of a sudden, what I will see in my patients too is that insulin comes into a beautiful, normal, optimal range. Not normal, optimal. A beautiful, optimal range of less than six. And the blood sugars will come down into the 90s, the 80s and 90s. And that's what we saw with my patient that I was telling you about. His blood sugars went from 600 to 200 to then 180. And then we were seeing 120s. And then when he would track his glucose, it was hovering 80, 90, 80, 90, 95, maybe 100, maybe 110 after a meal. And it was beautifully in control. You have to work on the thyroid. Now, in his case, his thyroid was optimal. It was the diet, the lifestyle, the eating, the supplementation that was required. In many of my patients, though, it starts with the thyroid and it has that trickle down effect. So we have to start there. So let's say your thyroid's optimized and you're still not losing weight. You're still gaining. And there's that insulin resistant component. So I've seen this in my patients too. I've seen the follow-up labs where the free T3 is a beautiful like 3.9, reverse T3 is below a 12. We're starting to chip away at their antibodies, but the insulin, and we come back, the insulin's an 11, a 15. That's where we have to focus. So that's where I will ask you, well, you know, how's your diet? What's going on here? How's your stress? How's your sleeping? So we're going to get into that too. So outside of after you optimize your thyroid, then we have to go down and say, what else is causing this? Okay, we know that exercise is really good at lowering insulin resistance. But are you doing incessant cardio? You know you have to lift heavy shit. And when you LHS and you pick up the weights and you do the resistance work, your insulin will absolutely, your insulin resistance will improve. So you'll get that overall effect. And then in the immediate, you will lower your blood glucose and you will help to push that insulin into the cells where it should be. However, long state, long steady state cardio actually increases your cortisol, which cortisol will push up glucose. It's a stressor on the body. It's a huge stressor. Now, all exercise is stressed to a point, but that cardio component where you're just pounding and pounding and pounding, you're not giving your body any resistance work. That is a huge stressor. You'll spike your cortisol, which will then elevate your blood glucose. And that will call for more insulin to be secreted from the pancreas, but your cell doors are closed. So the insulin can't get in. Now you're in a fat storage mode. Here, you all you did was work out, right? You did cardio to try to lose the fat because that's what we've heard for 20 years. Do cardio to burn body fat. Do cardio and more cardio to burn body fat. And that's what I did when I was competing. I did cardio twice a day. And all it does is increase cortisol. It puts a stressor on your body. That increases blood glucose. And by the way, it's not good for your thyroid at all. That level of cardio, that level of pounding, that steady state cardio, that stress that comes from that cardio, not good for your thyroid either. So you will tank your own metabolism coming at it from two angles while you're trying to do cardio to lose weight. So you can see kind of the craziness in all of this. That's why I say the Peloton's like the worst invention in the last 10 years because everybody's plopping their asses on a Peloton and biking their way to nowhere and increasing their cortisol, increasing the stress on their body, shutting down their own thyroid production, not picking up a weight, not doing any kind of resistance exercise, their testosterone ends up tanking and then it's just a whole mess, whole mess. So if you are on a Peloton, get your butt off, get to the gym, my hat's over there so I can't even reach it, lift heavy shit or I would put it on for you, lift heavy shit. Lack of sleep, 
I've talked about this a couple of times. We have a sleep episode too. I talked about this in the all about weight loss episode. Sleep is vital. Whether you want to believe it or not, it's vital. I met with a patient this past weekend and she says, well, I get up at 1.30 a.m. I'm like, wait, can you say that again? You get up at 1.30, why? Well, I have to be to work at 4.30. So I prep my food and I do this and I do that and I exercise. And I'm like, okay, we need to do something about that because I don't care if you go to bed at 7 p.m. Getting up at 1.30 a.m. is breaking that circadian rhythm. You're not getting in that 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. rest and repair time, rest, restore, repair. So that wacky sleep will absolutely make you insulin resistant and throw off your insulin levels and cause you to gain weight, but you're going against your own circadian rhythm. It's not good to do. So we basically figured out that that sleep schedule alone can be contributing to how she's feeling. On top of that, lack of sleep can elevate circulating levels of free fatty acids in the blood accompanied by a temporary pre-diabetic condition. So they found this in a study. They did a study on healthy young men. They found that after three nights of getting only four hours of sleep, blood levels of fatty acids, which usually peak and then recede overnight, remained elevated from 4 a.m. to 9 a.m. As long as fatty acid levels remained high, the ability of insulin to regulate blood sugars was reduced. Now, what's interesting here is how many of you are waking up in the middle of the night at like 2, 3, or 4 a.m. and you can't get back to sleep. Many, many, many times that is correlated to irregular blood sugars or insulin resistance. Because your body, just like the study said, it will peak and then recede. So if you spike your blood sugar high at any point of time in the day before, you will drop incredibly low during the night to the point where it will wake you up. Now, you may or may not wake up hungry, but it's just your body's way of, of protecting you. It's like, ooh, a jolt. And so then you're up and then you're looking at your watch and you look at your phone and you're like, ah, here I am again. It's 3 a.m. Can't get back to sleep. So in this particular study, what happened from 4 to 9 a.m. is another rise in their glucose, which is very, very interesting. So their blood sugar remained, remained elevated in that normal waking time. Now, the other thing to keep in mind is that we do have a cortisol awakening response too. So when cortisol goes up in the morning, it goes up to wake us up. And sometimes we can get elevated glucose. Like if you test first thing, you test your glucose, you go into fasted state, to your blood draw and you test glucose, that might be high. But I always say, well, glucose can lie because if you have that cortisol awakening response, you might get an elevated glucose reading. That's why we have to test fasting insulin. But neither here nor there, let me go back to sleep. Not back to sleep, but back to sleep. So there's another study that I found very, very interesting that they took twins and put them in a sleep lab, controlled their environment. So genetics, everything's the same, environment's the same, food's the same, all that. And with the one twin, all they did, this wasn't a lack of sleep like this study. I think this is very interesting because how many of you get four or five hours of sleep every night because you're staying up too late and you're not getting to bed in time or whatever. You're just not sleeping well because you have a low progesterone. You have a wackadoodle thyroid and that's all contributing to your insomnia. But then we have the other side of they, they kept the one individual out of REM sleep, the one twin. They kept him out of REM sleep. So they didn't wake him up. At no point of time did he wake up. They just simulated his brain to bring him out of REM sleep. 
And it was something like, like this, like within three to four days, he was pre-diabetic diabetic. Now for researchers to say pre-diabetes, remember, that's bad. Like for re when researchers say pre-diabetes, it's diabetes in the functional world. That's why if you if I look at your labs and you have an A1C of a 5.6, you're diabetic. You're not pre, you're not maybe, you're not let's watch and see like conventional medicine says. You are pre-diabetic. So huge difference. So with these studies, my God, if they're saying that they were pre-diabetic diabetic, they were pretty bad. That is what lack of sleep can do. So we have to look at that. And of course, we have to look at the stress that we're under. So just like I said, that long steady state cardio is a stressor on your body. What about all the other stressors? Many times I will have patients that say, you know, I'm really frustrated and I just can't figure out why my body's not losing weight, but my thyroid is optimized. What's going on? Are you stressed? It's a big question. And it's one that sometimes you have to pause and think about because so many of you talking to you are running around in a stressed out state, but you think this is the norm. If you're an entrepreneur, if you are a type A individual, you are running around stressed out to the max and you think that that's normal or you think that that's required for success or you think that that's required to get through your day and get all the shit done that you have to do. I get it on a very deep level. I get it, but it's not healthy. That's where burnout occurs. You, know, you hear people burning out. You hear these stars checking themselves into rehab facilities because of exhaustion. I mean, okay, maybe it's a drug problem. Maybe it's really exhaustion because they're burning the candle at both ends. If you are in that ongoing stressed out state, so let's go deeper. Let's say that you are taking care of a parent. You are slowly watching your parents die. You are taking care of a disabled child. You are in a horrible relationship you don't know how to get out of. You are in a job that you absolutely despise and makes you sick every day that you go. Yes, that's ongoing. Some of those things you can't change or you're not ready to change or you just don't know how yet. That's stress. And that will absolutely cause weight gain because it will cause that insulin resistance. It will spike your glucose. It will spike your insulin. It will call for more insulin from the pancreas to be secreted. And that alone will put you in that insulin resistance state. Absolutely. So this is very interesting. I was just reading it before I read it to you. It's just something to keep in mind. An estimated 87 million American adults have prediabetes. Now, again, this is conventional medicine saying these, this data, these numbers. This isn't functional medicine doing these numbers. So if it's 87 million Americans have prediabetes according to their standards, I'm going to double that. Because remember, when we're looking at insulin on a blood test, that insulin level on a normal standard lab value range will go up to most of the time. It's like 20, maybe 25 before you're flagged high. I want to below a six, below a six. So you can see the discrepancy there. So if you are being told that you're normal, but you're like, wait a minute, doc, my insulin's a ton and I'm gaining weight. Oh, no, you're not. You're not pre-diabetic. You're good. Your A1C is a 5.6. It's not flagged. Your insulin's a 10. You're fine. <laughs> really? That's the standard of care in conventional medicine. When we add on the functional medicine optimal ranges, I'm going to say this is doubled. 
So let's bring it up to 160 million. American adults have prediabetes. 30% of 50% will go on to develop full-blown type 2 diabetes. In addition, up to 80% of people with type 2 have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So this is where we come back to, remember in the beginning, that these cells in your muscles, body fat, and liver start resisting or ignoring the signal of insulin. So non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is a huge growing problem combined with insulin resistance. It boosts your risk of liver damage and heart disease. Now, I don't remember what podcast number this was that I talked about liver. We'll find it. We'll put it in the show notes. But I have a whole podcast about loving on your liver and the importance of that. And one of the things that we see when those liver enzymes start to go up is insulin resistance, weight gain. One thing we see with insulin resistance is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. The two go hand in hand. We used to call it metabolic syndrome. Metabolic syndrome was tying in the high triglycerides and the low HDLs. And then you had to have high blood pressure too. It doesn't always have to be that. I mean, you can have an issue, we'll, we'll call it metabolic syndrome, just having a piss poor metabolism. Maybe your thyroid is off. Maybe you have low testosterone or maybe you have insulin resistance. Either way, we have to focus on your liver and we have to focus on the insulin and always check thyroid because those are so combined. They're so intertwined that when you fix one, usually the other gets better, but we always have to start with thyroid. Then we go down to the other corner of the triangle and hit the insulin. We start focusing on that, changing up your diet, adding in berberine. We come over here, we love on the liver. We take out alcohol because that pounds the liver and we support the liver with nutrients. Once we do that, everything works synergistically. It's like a beautiful symphony that starts to occur, but you can't do one without the other. What we're seeing here is years of this high insulin level followed by the onslaught of cell damaging high blood sugar. Remember I said earlier, when you're walking around with high blood sugar, we have neuropathy. We have damage of the nerve cells. We have tissue and cell damage. People with insulin resistance, prediabetes, type two, are at a higher risk of cardiovascular disease. Cardiovascular disease is the number one killer of women. Then you have that insulin-resistant component doubling your risk for heart attack and stroke. It triples the odds that your heart attack or brain attack, stroke, will be deadly. Meanwhile, insulin resistance and this whole metabolic syndrome that we'll call it are also linked with higher risk of cancer of the bladder, the breast, the colon, the cervix, the pancreas, the prostate, and the uterus. We also know about Alzheimer's, which I've spoken about many times on the podcast. We also know that high insulin, high glucose contributes to a much, much greater risk of dementia, Alzheimer's, and Parkinson's. And I share the story of my mom who passed from Alzheimer's. And I remember watching her. And if I knew, gosh, if we could only rewind, if I could know 10 years ago what I know now, I would tap into the Bredesen protocol. I would talk to Dale Bredesen himself. I would rip the diet pop, the bread and the ice cream out of my mother's hands. I would put her on estrogen, which of course she was on during the Women's Health Initiative study. I remember her being on estrogen. Her doctor pulled it from her hands because of course, you know, estrogen is going to cause cancer for the WHI. I could have extended her life and possibly, possibly prevented Alzheimer's. 
It's in my family. It's in my genes. But I do fully wholeheartedly believe that epigenetics play a role. What we choose to put in our mouths and put on our bodies, what we choose not to put in our bodies, i.e. bioidentical hormones, has a greater cost to it than doing so, than making the changes. Because what I saw her go through, and any of you who have gone through Alzheimer's, you're going to be nodding. If you have not been exposed to a close loved one going through Alzheimer's, you have no idea the hell that that walk is. If I could have done everything that I know now, I would have loved to see what would have been possible. And I think she would be here today with her brain intact. I really do. But we didn't know. We didn't know back then. She literally lived on... Now, I say this on the side. Okay, let me clarify. Because I don't want you out there thinking like, well, I just eat a little bit of bread and a little ice cream and just occasionally drink a diet pop. My mom didn't live on it. It's an overstatement. She incorporated it in daily. Like every day, she loved her toast. She would have toast with peanut butter in the morning. And if we went out to dinner, my God, the bread basket, (laughs) that was key. And then she really loved her Diet Pepsi. And she liked to finish the day with an ice cream. Now, at one point in time in her life, she was finishing the day with a glass of wine, which I'm also going to get into briefly. But so that wasn't good. That was not a better choice. That was not a better choice for the record. But I really believe that that high insulin level catapulted her Alzheimer's and dementia, 100%. There's no doubt. There's no doubt in my mind. I know I just got off track there, didn't I? Yeah, I got thrown off by just thinking about my mom and thinking about what we could have done. So if any of you have it in your family, now is the time to start making the changes because you will literally reduce your risk of cancer, heart disease, Alzheimer's, dementia. My God, why wouldn't we want to stay out of that? It's a horrible, horrible, all of those diseases are horrible. You don't want to die early. You don't want to lose your mind early. And going back to the cost, the overall cost So I know a lot of you are like, ah, I can't afford bioidentical hormones. I can't afford functional medicine. This is by no means a plug for working with me or working with a functional medicine practitioner. I understand it's an investment, but I am going to kind of go off on a mini tangent here that I didn't plan for. When I think of the cost, the amount of money that my dad put out to keep her in the home, she, she did not go to a nursing home. She stayed in her own, my, my mom and dad's home until the day she died. And I was there with her, thankfully. But the workers, the care workers, the, the, the health care workers that he had to hire to come help him as he took on this, this heavy, I don't even want to call it a burden, but this heavy responsibility that he wanted to do and take care of her. It was, my gosh, daunting on him and his health. It was financially costly. It was time-wise costly. And then just, I don't know what kind of price you can put on the emotional burden, but me watching my mom literally wither away in over years, probably the last three years were the worst, but three years is a long time to watch someone not know where they are, not remember you lose the ability to wipe themselves, lose the ability to clean themselves, that cost is heavy. Now you might be thinking, well, that's not going to be me. And it's not going to be my family. That's what I thought too, because we were all into health, but I wasn't at that time into the 
the knowledge that I have now, the benefits of hormones, the importance of optimizing her thyroid, the importance of bringing down her insulin. So that's why I'm sharing this is we have to do things now. Yes, for our appearance. And I get it. And that's why I titled this, why high glucose, high insulin and picos can make you fat. But we also have to think about longevity and we have to think about our disease state. And we have to think about what are we going to give to our family? Are we going to give taking care of us as we lose our minds, as we battle cancer? No, let's do things that we can. Let's do what we can do to prevent as much as we possibly can. Insulin is hugely inflammatory. Remember, cancer cells feed on insulin. They feed on sugar. And that's why right now we're seeing berberine and metformin as anti-aging remedies because they actually come in and they, yes, they help us lose weight, but they also lower our risk of cancer because you're not constantly feeding. If you do have a little cancer cell in your body, which we probably all do, we all have these malformed cells. If you have a cancer cell in your body, then we don't want to feed that. We want it to keep it itty bitty so it stays small and quiet doesn't do anything. It doesn't metastasize. But if we feed it and we fuel it, now we're at an increased risk. Now we're actually feeding the cancer cells. It's important to also remember that insulin resistance can occur without overall obesity. I mean, we see this all the time. I see this in my patients all the time. You might have 20 pounds to lose, 30 pounds to lose. You're not obese, but you still have that insulin resistant component. So we see fat accumulation in the liver in people with normal BMIs, with a normal weight. So you can still be insulin resistant. Maybe you're carrying an extra 10 pounds and you have fatty liver. Women with insulin resistance may have increased ovarian testosterone secretion. That's where we see the diagnosis of PCOS. So we have the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. We also have that insulin resistant component increasing testosterone secretion from the ovaries. And now we have the excess androgens. Like I said earlier, that those excess androgens are what caused me to break out. Now, most of the time I see my ladies having low testosterone, low androgens because they're past that, that PICO state. They might still have the insulin resistance hanging on or maybe the IR is coming from a wacky thyroid or maybe we do just have to hone in their diet. They're eating way too many carbs because they heard that berries and oatmeal are great for you. So maybe we do have to do those changes. Most of the time I see low testosterone, but in the case of PCOS, if you're listening out there and you have PCOS, there's an insulin resistant component to that. And oftentimes, instead of throwing on birth control on you, we can use berberine, we can use metformin, we can do dietary changes, we can make sure that you're sleeping and that you're not all wigged out, stressed out. We can use bioidentical progesterone. And then all of a sudden, everything gets better. Your face clears up, you're sleeping better, you're calmer, your cycles regulate and you lose weight because you lowered the insulin. You lowered the insulin. You lowered your blood glucose. I think it's really interesting when we wear a CGM and we see what actually spikes our glucose. So one of the sponsors of the podcast is NutriSense and I really I found it interesting so they sent me a monitor to wear. And I've been wearing them on and off anyways. And one night I drank wine with the monitor on. Now, the one crazy thing, I think this was like the Libre 3. So again, if you're listening it in two years, you're probably like, that's so old school. But for now, 
It was one of the latest monitors and it has this loud sensor when you drop low. And I had just put it on maybe a day before, had some wine, went to bed, normal time, wasn't partying until 2 a.m. And this alarm goes off at 2 a.m. My husband's like, what the hell is that? What's going on? I'm like, ma, it's my glucose monitor. Stop. Here I had dropped low from the alcohol. So again, when we're talking about sleep, yeah, I had effed up sleep that night. And then the alcohol component, alcohol will mess up your sleep. So if you ever, ever wore an aura ring, you will see that you don't get deep sleep. So now we're going back, we're tying this into the study on the twins, bringing them out of REM sleep and having them go into type two diabetes basically within days. If you're not getting deep sleep, if you're not getting good quality sleep, if you're waking up because you're spiking your insulin and dropping it low, then you're going to gain weight. You're going to be in that insulin resistant state. Alcohol will do that. So all you ladies out there are like, I need to have my glass of wine every night because that's what I need to relax or that's what I need after work or that's how my significant another and I connect. We might need to change that up. Not only is alcohol inflammatory, going to F up your sleep and I have proof of it. If you want proof too, go ahead and throw on a CGM and drink and let me know how your sleep goes. And let me know how you pissed off your partner is when that alarm goes off in the middle of the night. But sometimes that's good because that alarm told me, oh my God, this is what alcohol does to your sleep. It's incredible. So that's another thing that we can change in order to help with the insulin resistance. So much good stuff. So much good stuff. So yes, what can we do? Let's add in some berberine. Let's reel in our diet. You might have to go keto. You might have to go carnivore for a hot minute. You might actually even get away with paleo and lowering your insulin resistance. Some people do. Some people do. But implement these strategies and you will notice a huge, like ginormous, a huge difference. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I hope you loved it. And as always, if you would be so kind to leave a review, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, that would be absolutely amazing. I read all of them. Also, anything that you hear on this podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any kind of medical condition. So we always recommend that you check with your medical provider, your doctor, your nurse practitioner before implementing anything that you hear on this podcast. And if you want to find out more about working together, you can click the link below in the show notes to book a discovery call. And there you'll be talking to a member of my team, they are an extension of me. They are amazing. And you and I will talk after that once we get you all signed up and you and I get to work together. All right. I hope to see you soon.